Hi, I'm Jeff Ray, your host for Economic Outlook. Thank you for joining us. We hope you'll make plans each week to tune in on WNIT, WNIT2, online at WNIT.org, or listen to our podcast of the show on most major podcast platforms. Major changes are happening in the automotive industry with all of the large automakers announcing major shifts to electric vehicles in the coming years. We'll take a deeper dive into that trend, talk about commercial applications for that shift, and look at what's happening locally and nationally coming up on Economic Outlook. Before we get started here at WNIT, we are respecting social distancing as such, have both our guests and our host today joining us virtually instead of in person. The automotive landscape could look a lot different over the next decade with the shift to electric vehicles and the advent of numerous new electric vehicle manufacturers. The commercial application of those vehicles could fuel the major push. Joining me today to talk more about the automotive industry and what the future of electric vehicles looks like, as well as how that might impact our regional economy is Bernard Sawicki the Director of Automotive Communities Partnerships at the Center for Automotive Research. Bernard, thanks for joining me today. Thanks very much, Jeff. Well, Bernard, we've got you on today because we're really interested in this topic of what's happening in the automotive industry in general, but more specifically related to electric vehicles. There's all this talk out there about the, the shift to electric. Uh, companies are announcing new, uh, new vehicles. They're thinking about new plants and stuff. And so we, we're just going to spend our time together talking a little bit about that. Can you just talk to us a little bit? What, like, why is there so much interest in doing electric vehicles at this time? Yeah, you know, so Jeff, the expression that I like to use is that the stars have aligned. Uh, the technology is much more mature. There is a greater level of consumer acceptance, you know, and you have to credit companies like Tesla for, you know, producing a sense of excitement around these kinds of vehicles. And I think what we're benefiting from is, you know, for a long time, um, people didn't think of cars as a very exciting product. You know, we were kind of getting categorized much like washing machines and other appliances. And, you know, maybe now with the electric car, we could be thought of, you know, the way that people get excited about an iPhone or, you know, other new type of technology like that, and kind of use that as our, as our bridge to being cool for a change. And companies like Tesla, I think, deserve some of that credit. And so to me, it really is borne out in the fact that last year, if you take all the electrified vehicles that we sold, the hybrids, the plug-in hybrids, the pure battery electrics, but if you add them up, there were nine and a half percent of the market in the United States, which made them our third biggest segment. The only bigger segments are utility vehicles, pickup trucks, then electric. And by the way, that was nine and a half percent in 2021. And you might wonder, okay, well, what's the momentum? Like, how's it looking so far this year? Uh, I can tell you in January, it was about 12%. So it's only continuing to pick up more momentum. Great. So, so Bernard, when I think of Tesla and I think of the, 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 the home side of this, right? I'm going to take this home every night. I'm going to you know, plug it in. I'm going to use it for local traffic. I'm curious about the commercial applications of this as well, too. Have, have electric been mostly a, a luxury for that third vehicle for the family? Are we seeing new applications? Talk a little bit about the commercial application of it. Yeah, of course. So yes, absolutely. Um, right now, we're still in the early days, right? So the battery technology is getting better, but for most folks, they still don't quite believe uh, in the infrastructure being robust enough to take those cross-country trips. And so electric vehicles have been second or third cars for most people. Uh, and in the infrastructure bill that was passed last year in November, 
uh, there is seven and a half billion dollars to enhance that infrastructure. And so I think that's going to be a big driver of electric vehicle sales, because to me, even if you never use that electric charging station, it still does a lot of good by giving people the confidence that if I'm out of electricity somewhere, uh, I can use that station and, and kind of not get stranded. And then you have the intersection of that and commercial vehicles. And it's kind of perfect right now because one, uh, a lot of those vehicles don't drive all that many miles because they're being driven very much locally and they start and end the day at the same point, which means you know where you could recharge. You've got that steady location and you don't have to worry about you know what's out there in the nether regions. And so the automotive industry is heavily pursuing that, partially because it's another market. Uh, and of course, you, you want to do that. And partially because more folks are shopping from home and getting things delivered. And it's just a booming part of the overall transportation sector. Uh, but also something that I think gets lost is this. Um, the only reason that every single car on the road doesn't cost a million dollars is because we make so many of them. And you get these incredible economies of scale. You know, a, a new assembly plant often now costs between a billion, sometimes approaching $2 billion. Um, you know, and so the only way that this is even remotely affordable is because we make so many. And right now we're in a conundrum because we don't really make enough electric vehicles to have those economies of scale. And so if we can not just make electric passenger cars, but if we can do utilities and pickup trucks and delivery vehicles and go commercial, suddenly you're borrowing economies of scale from other transportation sectors and you're bringing those costs down and the more you get them out, the higher the economies of scale get, the cheaper they become. And it becomes this nice kind of virtuous circle. Uh, but again, it's automotive. We are volume dependent. It's how this industry is built. Great. Bernard, we're going to take a quick break here in the studio. Um, George Lepinotis, my co-host, is out with a look back in time at electric vehicles here in the South Bend area. George, let me toss it to you. Thanks, Jeff. I'm downtown South Bend at the Studebaker National Museum, one of my favorite places to visit, and today is a very special visit. I'm joined by the curator of the museum, Kyle Sater. Kyle, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for being here. Kyle, we are specifically focusing this show on electric vehicles. And while people think of Studebaker, they think of a lot of different types of vehicles, all the way from horse-drawn or, or, or horse carriages sure. to the Avanti, mm -hmm. uh, there is a segment of Studebaker's history that involves electric vehicles, there including is. the beauty standing right behind us. That's right. Can you tell me a little bit about Studebaker's history in the electric vehicle space? Sure, it's actually one of my favorite parts of Studebaker's history. So the one behind us here is a 1911 electric Studebaker uh, coupe. Uh, and there, were about, there was 10 years they made electric vehicles. Uh, at the same time, they made horse-drawn vehicles. Um, so this is the, in, the, in the few years before they made their first gasoline-powered car, right? Um, and so this, again, it's, it's a great example of, a, of an early 20th century Studebaker behind us um, run by lead-acid batteries. Um, you go about 15 miles an hour, so not crazy fast, but it got you where you were going. So. And we took a look, you showed me the battery compartment, sure. and you said something interesting to me that I, I didn't realize. You said that with a little bit of help and a couple of charged batteries, this car would drive. Oh yeah, oh yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, that, there, there's only so many moving parts on these vehicles, right? Uh, and so um, we're lucky that people thought to save them, even, because there aren't many of these early electric vehicles around anymore. And so it, it would run. Yeah, It, it does run. speak to the simplicity of the electric vehicle mm -hmm. and how that technology got sidelined by the internal combustion engine. Sure. Now let's talk about that part, because we do know that the internal combustion engine took over in the, what, I think you told me the early 20s? Well, it, it was really Henry Ford's Model T, right, that kind of uh, start, was the beginning of the end, if you will, for, for the electric car. Uh, gasoline was, was cheaper, it was more abundant uh, on the infrastructure, it wasn't quite there in the early 20th century, and so there were a lot of these factors that came together, you know, that, that put a lot of these early electric manufacturers out of business. Uh, obviously Studebaker kept going, right? Um, transitioned to making gas-powered cars, but th again, about 1912 uh, they were making electrics uh, up until, and they kind of transitioned at that point all, all over to gas. What was it about the electric coupe that made it so difficult to live with? What, what, what would you really pin it down to? I mean, that's a good question. I think there, there were just limitations, right, to, to the electric car. And I think early vehicles, there was not one solution. I think there were a lot of things that came together to make, to make gas kind of the future, if you will. But I think some of those same, same things are coming back around, right, to, to make electrics more uh, popular and viable again. And um, I think we're, we're seeing a real, it's a real revolution right now. And it really started over 100 years ago. Yeah, so, that's yeah. great. Thank yeah. you for showing us Thank this. Thank you. Thanks for hosting us here today. Um, and uh, stick around because I think, Jeff, I'm going to throw it back to you in the studio for now, but you're going to come back and I've got another guest out here at the National Museum today that's going to talk a little bit more about how we can make sure the next electric revolution is more successful than the first. George, thank you for that walk back in time. Appreciate the look at the good work that the Studebaker brothers were doing on electric vehicles back in the early 1900s. Bernard, you know, George's uh, spot makes me think a little bit about, um, you know, auto, automakers and this thought of, of, of launching electric vehicle. And certainly the news has been splattered here in recent months with, with I would call it the name brands all saying they're going to do electric vehicles, but also quite a few vehicle, uh, electric vehicle startups a little bit. So can you just talk about just maybe some of the players that are playing in the space and the sort of the established name brands versus the, I got a new idea, I want to build a, an electric vehicle? Yeah, you know, it's interesting, Jeff. Uh, everything old is new again. And yes, it's true. You know, this, this industry made quite a run at electric vehicles about 100 years ago. And I, I actually like to use some of those old photos and presentations uh, that I do. You know, so just to harp on that a little bit, you know, it is a little bit of a different industry uh, now, you know, for, for that period of time, you know, why did we ever leave those electric vehicles? Part of it is we, dis we discovered, oh my goodness, just how much energy density there is in a gallon of gasoline, you know, and, and, and no battery really could compete with that using that old battery technology. Uh, new battery technology gets us there. It, you know, it's still more expensive, it's still heavier, um, but it, it's nothing like those old times. So, you know, hopefully this time it's got a little bit of sticking power, uh, but, you know, because it's a little bit less specialized, you don't need all those automotive only components to quite the same degree. And you can borrow from other industries, suddenly purely electric vehicles are much more open to new entities. You know, Tesla began that, uh, be, but we right now have, for example, Lucid producing vehicles in Arizona uh, and others. You know, Rivian has started up. I'm seeing them on the road here already in Michigan. 
Um, so yes, the different nature of these electric vehicles and the fact that you don't need decades of R&D into engines and transmissions and drive lines and transfer cases and so on does make it easier for those new entrants. And you know, those new entrants, it's interesting, they are succeeding to a degree. We even have a, a Vietnamese company that's moving into um, the United States and they're looking for a, a location to build a plant. Um, but those new entrants have enjoyed fabulous stock performance. Wall Street has loved them because of that green connection. Uh, and now that the traditional automakers are also getting deep into electrical, we're seeing Wall Street reward their stock price as well. You know, for example, Ford has more than doubled over the last couple of years. Uh, and so, you know, for me, that's going to be one big driver is this is no longer just, you know, happy public relations, you know, an environment friendly tweet, you know, gosh darn it, your valuation of your company includes your green credentials. Uh, and so I think that's one more reason why this is going to be sticking around and why those new entrants are actually having that cool impact on the traditional industry as well. So talk about how the maybe these startups even are revolutionizing the even the car experience in terms of, of, of where you get them um, and how you maintain them, those kind of things. Yeah, you know, and it's interesting to me, Jeff, Tesla really kind of started that trend and frankly went against a lot of laws um, in states that deal with uh, franchise requirements. Um, and I've actually kind of been a little bit surprised that they've been as, as successful as they have at that. Now, that's for new vehicles, um, used vehicles. You do have companies like Carvana and so on who will deliver a vehicle you know, to your driveway. So in fact, um, last year I bought one of these things. It's a Fiat 124 convertible. Never saw it, never drove it. You know, It just showed up in my driveway one January day uh, of 2021. Uh, and it was a very strange experience. You know, I did the entire thing uh, completely computer-based. Um, you know, so it is a very different delivery method. And it's not just how they get you the vehicle. Uh, for example, uh, VinFast, that Vietnamese company that I mentioned earlier. And by the way, I, I did put a deposit down on one of those things just out of curiosity, right? You can back out. Uh, but it's interesting to me how they're doing that sale. One, it is going to be direct to consumer, but beyond that, you're buying just the vehicle. You are not getting the battery in the purchase price of your vehicle. For as long as you own the vehicle, you're going to be paying a lease payment and the battery you're actually leasing from the automaker. Uh, and, you know, frankly, you have to put a deposit down without knowing how much you're going to pay for that battery lease, which is also interesting. Um, but I am just blown away by the idea that we're not just delivering a vehicle to you differently. You don't even own everything that's in that vehicle. And it doesn't always work. BMW tried the idea briefly of having heated seats in your car. And if you want to have them work, you have to pay a subscription fee or else they won't come on. That was not popular with, uh, with consumers. Um, but those kinds of approaches where you try and monetize different features that are built into the car are the wave of the future. So the way you get the car is just one element of that, but it's going to be that whole ownership and usage paradigm that we're throwing upside down right now. Bernard, we're going to take a break a second time. We're going, we're making George do double duty. George Lepignotis, my co-host, is back uh, out in the field with another local update about what's happening in the electric vehicle space. George, let me toss it to you. 
Thanks for sending it back, Jeff. You'll notice that I've moved. I'm now standing in front of another electric car housed here as part of the permanent display at the Studebaker National Museum, and I have a new guest. I'm joined by Bill Shalio from St. Joseph County. You're part of St. Joseph County's economic development team. Uh, and the county is keenly aware of, as I left off the last segment, that this next electric car revolution is gonna require uh, infrastructure and some assistance. What is it that the county is doing or looking at doing that might help promote that next electric car movement? Certainly, the, the only way the electric cars are gonna work is if they have power stations and, and the infrastructure to, to power them. Obviously, gas stations power the, the, the gas-powered car. We need to get to that point where the electric charging stations and, and that kind of technology are helping us with this next uh, generation with cars. So the county is working with business partners like MACOG and other organizations to start putting out charging stations across the county. And, and we're, we're working with those agencies to be very deliberate where those go, just so we can get them into the general populace um, and so we can get the infrastructure where it needs to be. Right now you're still limited on how far your car will go based on a charge and, and so we need to put them in places where people will use them. So whether it's out at University Park Mall or in the downtown areas, places where people could be long enough to get the cars charged so that they can go on to their next stop. As you said that, my mind got to working in the, you know, the areas you described and how important it is that you know, gas, our gas stations seem to be magically located. I mean, they're not magic. Some very intelligent people that invest in those types of businesses know where to put a gas station to get that traffic flow. Um, as we look at that pattern of movement with a vehicle, what is the concept for the traveler? Not the person that may be going to the mall, but the person that might be on the bypass burning around South Bend, either heading north or south? Well, I think that's the long-term challenge. So it's working with the, the INDAT and it's working with other agencies that control the bigger road networks so that we can get charging stations, whether it's at the, the travel plazas or, or at gas stations right off the intersections and things like that. So that's a longer-term play, but it obviously has to happen if this is gonna work. The other piece of this is very important is making sure we have a, a strong energy grid so that we can get energy to all the different places where we need the charging stations. So, as, as we work with uh, INM and, and the other uh, power agencies, making sure that we have power in places that we want to put power stations. Well, and that really does speak to why a government agency is involved, doesn't it? Because there are so many players, and organizing that and bringing it together requires that governmental, I don't want to call it authority, but that governmental ability to cross traffic and to cross different planes into different industries. So in addition to the infrastructure, there's also just the idea of manufacturing, right? In the early 1900s, the Studebaker family was making this area a part of that growing automobile revolution. What's going on here now with the new coming electric revolution? So nearly 100 years later, Electric Last Mile Solutions, a, a, a vehicle delivery system is, is building a product in the old H2 plant, the Hummer plant, uh, small class one delivery vehicles, similar in size almost to an Amazon truck, but those are being produced here in St. Joe County, 100% uh, electric. Uh, they, they will do a day's worth of work and then they have to be charged. So those are happening, those are being built right here in St. Joe County. So. That's awesome. And I know there are some other smaller businesses mm -hmm. that are doing some things for batteries and that sort of thing. We'll stay tuned to see how that goes. Bill, thanks again for being with me. I appreciate the insight and good luck with a monumental task. Well, thank you. Jeff, back to you in the studio. This has been a great afternoon here at the Studebaker National Museum, as it always is. And it's really exciting to see an industry about to change.
George, thanks so much. Appreciate the, the chance to, uh, to get some other local perspective. Bernard, in, in uh, George's spot there, we talked a little bit about Electric Last Mile. It's one of those startup makers that has the local community kind of excited. Um, they're taking on the former H2 plant um, here in our area. So we have a long history of vehicle production with the Hummer and with uh, Studebaker and, and some of those. So, so talk about, you know, as these plants are happening in communities, talk a little bit about, you know, kind of economic impact and what the community should, should be excited about as somebody like an electric last mile begins to ramp up. Yeah, so Jeff, absolutely. You know, for me, there are multiple elements there. One, there is a little bit of future proofing, you know, given that um, the growth rates are through the roof, you know, right now, uh, we think that by the end of the decade, at least 20% of the vehicles that we sell will be no emissions vehicles. So, you know, something that plugs into a wall. Um, so, you know, to me, attracting a company like that to your community is a little bit of future proofing. It does uh, mean that you won't be left behind by this wave. Um, you know, there's also the fact that it's a very different supply chain. So if you should have, you know, um, an exhaust system or a fuel system or an engine supplier in that community, that's a risk. However, you know, all of those new electrified components, you know, it's not just the battery and the motors, but there are a whole lot of different components in that electric vehicle that are specific to electric vehicles. And those uh, do represent growth opportunities. You know, maybe you can attract some of those suppliers to the community and help get some of that multiplier effect that makes automotive, uh, automotive investments so sought after. That's why the competition is so intense every time one of these plants is in play. Is it realistic to think that the that the um, gasoline power engines are going to go away in the next uh, decade and everything is going to move to electric? Yeah, Jeff, it's interesting. A lot of those announcements, uh, one, they refer to light duty vehicles. Uh, it's a you know it's a little bit harder to electrify um, full on utilities, trucks, you know, the medium duty vehicles, uh, you know, and frankly. Goodness, I just read this yesterday, but that new GMC Hummer, uh, if you get it fully loaded and optioned, it's over 10,000 pounds, right? And it is actually heavier than the original H1 Hummer, right? And, you know, this, it's interesting, you can kind of debate the green credentials of, of a vehicle like that. It's, it's electric for different reasons, right? It's all that wonderful torque and power and so on. Uh, there are reasons to electrify because you enjoy the, the experience and the driving dynamics as opposed to just the green energy. Um, you know, but essentially the heavy duty vehicles, that sort of thing, I think it will be electrified last. A lot of these announcements are also non-binding. So one, they refer to only light duty vehicles. Two, you know, it's not that you're gonna be necessarily penalized. It's, it's just a goal that you have announced. So, you know, that makes it easy to commit. For example, last August, um, the White House had a big announcement of trying to get the United States to 50% emissions free by 2030. Uh, and GM, Chrysler, Stellantis, their executives were all there. Uh, they all signed the pledge to, yes, let's make this a goal. But there's no legal pen penalty for not making it. So these are, you know, statements of intent. Uh, but, you know, there's a whole lot that can upset those apple cards before it actually happens. Great. So in our last two and a half minutes or so, Bernard, uh, so I, I just think we talked for a second about all the, 
the startups, a lot of new people playing the space that we, we've never heard of. I, I think of historically um, with regular vehicles, there were a lot of automakers. And then over time, there became only a handful of automakers. Is the trend going to be similar in the electric space? Will, will a GM or one of the big guys ultimately buy up technology that they see in others? Or, or, or do we think the new landscape is going to be there could be hundreds of options in, in this space? Uh, Jeff, I think it's more likely that you're going to have more options uh, because, frankly, the ability to manufacture a vehicle and design the powertrain, those are core competent competencies of, of traditional automakers that they will not want to yield. Uh, so I think the interest in buying electric automakers you know, that are just emerging from nowhere is going to be limited, but where there is huge interest in making acquisitions uh, is in a lot of the related software companies, uh, self-driving technology, driver assistance technology, and so on. Uh, those are areas where we're seeing the automakers make enormous acquisitions of some very highly valued technologies. Uh, you know, and those are not necessarily core competencies for those automakers. So they certainly don't mind uh, relying on technologies that were developed elsewhere. Great. Bernard, in our last minute, and I probably should have done it at the beginning. So you do some important work at the Center for Automotive Research. Tell us a little bit about um, that work in, in our final minute here. Yeah, so Jeff, uh, at CAR, I'm Director of Research as well as Director of the Automotive Communities Partnership. Uh, we're a nonprofit think tank. We've been serving the industry for a few decades now. Um, I'd recommend checking out our website. There's a lot of free content and webinars and presentations there that anyone can access. But, you know, in short, we're, uh, we're a little nonprofit, um, you know, not that many people, but uh, I think we do produce some pretty cool and pretty punchy research. Yeah, it's, it's been great, Bernard. I know I've followed your work for, I think, 20 years now, and I appreciate uh, how much you've been able to help enlighten us on so many automotive things. Our region is really heavy on automotive suppliers. We've had a, a great history in the automotive space, so thank you for helping uh, enlighten us, and thanks for being with us today. Oh, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Great. He's Bernard Swayicki, the Director of Automotive Community Partnerships at the Center for Automotive Research. Uh, that's it for our show today. Thank you for watching on WNIT or listening to our podcast. To watch this episode again in, or any of our past episodes, you can find Economic Outlook at WNIT.org or find our podcast on most major podcast platforms. We also encourage you to like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. I'm Jeff Ray. I'll see you next week. This WNIT local production has been made possible in part by viewers like you. Thank you.